Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see all of you. And I just want to echo real quick what Isaac just said, quick commercial right out of the gate to say, I hope you're planning to be here with us this Saturday at 1030. And you may be thinking, the Christmas Eve service is Saturday morning at 1030? You did hear that right. And you say, what is the thinking behind that? Well, the truth is, it is an entire experiment. So if you feel like it's experimental, well, it is. Here's our thinking. We are trying to create the greatest environment that we can that morning for an entire hour. We're going to pack this place out. We're going to have a lot of fun together. It's going to be a powerful service. And then our hope is it's as family-friendly as can be. And then the weekend is as family-friendly as it can be as well. Several have said, man, this will be the first time in a long time I get to spend some Christmas Eve with my family. I've got all these plans. That's our heart. That's our goal behind it. And so let's take this experiment together. But what I can tell you is I looked at the forecast this week, and I know you probably have two Friday is supposed to be like six or seven degrees and then Saturday morning for Christmas Eve when you wake up it'll be like 16 degrees which will probably feel like a heat wave after it's been six right but here are two promises that I have for you when you come that morning and you put on your jacket and you walk into this room and you're going man is it cold out there the good news first of all it's gonna be dry so that's good but here are the two promises the heater will work and the hot chocolate will be hot so when you come, bring your friend, and as Isaac said, people are just more likely to say yes this time of year than any other, so it's a great opportunity, and we're going we're gonna to prepare a service that's not only for you, but for your guest that you will invite. So make sure you invite them this Saturday morning at 10.30. We're going to have a lot of fun here together. Now, as Isaac said, we're going through this series that really is just on the Christmas story, and here's why we're doing that, because what we know is Christmas is so believable because the story is just so incredible so what we looked at in week one was that the entire old testament points forward to jesus and reminds us that god keeps his promises we don't always see that in our lifetime we're trying to figure out circumstances and what we saw was that though your life is valuable it is one sentence in the grand story of god and then last week we saw the beautiful truth that God demonstrated his love for you in that while you and I are sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, he fully knows you and he fully accepts you. You are fully loved and the Christmas story demonstrates that. But today, we're going to look at what is often an unseen, mysterious part of the Christmas story. And I can't wait for us to talk about that because Christmas it accomplished something that we rarely talk about and many people who follow Jesus never experience. So I can't wait for us to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Now, before we dive in, though, I just want to say in every series, we like to have one verse that we anchor the series around because we believe if you put these verses to memory, you will make better decisions and your life will just be better. And so our memory verse for this series is Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. I'm going to say it out loud once, and then I'm going to invite you to say it out loud once. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1, 23. Would you just say that out loud with me? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1, 23. I love it. Now, let me give you a quick disclaimer before we get going today. What we're going to talk about today, I believe. I know you're thinking, well, I would hope so. 
What we're going to talk about today, Scripture teaches. I know you're thinking, well, I would hope so. But what we're talking about today, I personally struggle with, and I bet you do too. And that's why I'm excited for us to talk about this unseen, mysterious part of the Christmas story. And to really get us thinking in this way, I want to put up a question that I know you've asked, and that is this three-word question, is there more? You ever asked that question? I know you have. Maybe you're even thinking that right now, like, is this all there is to life? Maybe it's your life, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your career, maybe it's just the country and the division that we see, and you're thinking, is there more? Is this all there is to it? Especially in this Christmas season when everything is supposed to be merry and bright, and a lot of people are disappointed, disillusioned, depressed, and bored, and they're thinking, is there more? I see all the festivities, I hear about all the parties, and maybe I'm even attending them, and while I'm there and people are putting on the mask of joy, I'm asking the question, is this it? Is there more? This is the question that is tugging at the heart of every human being, and this is where the Christmas story steps in. This is what the Christmas story answers, is this question that is longing in every human heart. And we're going to talk about it today, this mysterious, unseen part of the Christmas story that answers this question, is there more? So I hope you'll follow along in Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter in the New Testament, we see the miracle of a 2,000-year-old promise come true, where God keeps his promise and the Messiah is finally born. If you don't have your Bibles, you can turn with us to page number 783. It's Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 18. Look with me there. Matthew chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. It's as if the writer of scripture is saying, pay attention. We're about to talk about the most famous and most history-changing birth Ever. This birth changed history. Pay attention and hear the details of how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they <clears throat> came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting because have you ever thought about the fact that she was found, meaning There was suspicion, there was confusion around her pregnancy. I would guess so. She's a pregnant virgin. Those two things don't go together. And think about this writer of Matthew actually gives us Joseph's perspective. Think about what Joseph is thinking. There was a season, this verse says, that he knew about the pregnancy of his wife and he had no answers. He just had questions and he's confused. The angel of the Lord hasn't spoken to him yet. He's already found his wife to be pregnant. And the confusion of his circumstances make no sense. Some of you can relate, can't you? In your own circumstances, you're in that season where things are confusing and don't make sense, and you haven't had the angel of the Lord speak to you, and so you're instead in this place of, how does this work and why is this happening? And sometimes in our lifetime, we don't get the answers until the other side, and we get to see that even with Joseph. He found his wife to be pregnant and he's confused he's well after all his fiance is pregnant and he's not the dad he's got a problem with that look what he thinks he begins to wrestle with that look at verse 19 so because joseph her husband was faithful to the law 
and yet Joseph did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now the law back then, this is an ancient law, this wasn't a Bible thing, this was a cultural thing, where back then if a woman was caught in adultery, often they would publicly shame her, and if she was convicted, they would stone her. We remember the story, in fact, of the woman caught in adultery, and a bunch of men were about to stone her when Jesus came to her defense. Well, in the same way this ancient law, Joseph has decided he is not going to practice this law. Instead, he's thinking, I may divorce her. I may not fulfill my commitment to marry her. You say, why would he do that? Because his fiancée is pregnant and he is not the dad, right? Let's just be real. This is what he's thinking. This doesn't make sense. God hasn't yet explained what's going on. And then verse 20 comes and the angel of the Lord speaks and Joseph finally gets the answers that have been keeping him up at night in this, in this dream. But after Joseph had considered this, meaning he's not going to fulfill his commitment to marriage, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph? Son of David, do not, he's obviously afraid, be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why? Because I have a fiancé who's pregnant and I'm not the dad. And the answer is because what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden Joseph thinks, wait, what? You mean the Holy Spirit who brought light out of darkness in Genesis 1? is the same Holy Spirit that will bring light out of my darkness in Matthew 1? You mean to tell me the creator of the universe is creating again within the womb of my fiancé? And he begins to think, we're going we're gonna to raise a baby. And all of a sudden things begin to turn as he begins to see, oh, this explains what's going on. Well, the, 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 the dream continues. No need for a gender reveal party because the angel is going to say, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, which is that Hebrew word that means the Lord is salvation. Good news because, according to this dream, his name is Jesus because he will save. Oh, well, that's really good news. You know why? Because you think about Joseph is hearing this dream and he's thinking, save from What? Save from what exactly? Is this the long-awaited Messiah that my parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents have been talking about for over 2,000 years? And if that's the case, the really good news, Joseph thinks, and all those who will hear about the dream, this is so timely because it was around 63 B.C. when General Pompey came with the Roman Empire and began to dominate and, and to occupy the land of Israel. And they're oppressed, and they're thinking they're not being treated like humans. They're, 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 their entire world has gotten much, much, much smaller. And they're thinking we no longer have freedom. And all of a sudden, he hears that Jesus, who is salvation, is going to come and save them. So you know what he assumed? This is so great. He's going to save us from the Roman Empire and this recent oppression. This is beautiful news that we're going to be rescued from our political oppression. Great news, Joseph thought. But then the rest of the dream is, no, Jesus will save people from their sins. And Joseph and the, those in the first century would have thought, wait, what? You mean from the Roman Empire? No, from their sins. And, and Joseph would say, well, well, clearly you aren't familiar with our greatest need if you think that the political oppression is not our greatest need. 
The Jewish people instead thought that Rome needs to be saved from their sins and we need to be saved from Rome. This is our greatest need. This is what every first century Jewish person would have thought. Here's the tragedy. The people in the first century, those Jewish people, misunderstood their greatest need and they thought their greatest need was political freedom. Does that sound familiar? As we live in the 21st century, does that sound a little familiar? That sometimes we misunderstand our greatest need. Our greatest need is that we sin and we need rescue from our sins. But I don't know about you, but I hear this all the time around me and it is within me to think this sometimes. No, my greatest need is for there not to be political division anymore and for people to get it right and the right candidate to get in, for the right justices to get in, for the right Congress to get in, for the right state, state legislatures to get in, and for the right policies to be passed. That's what we need. That is our greatest need. And we're just like the first century Jewish people who misunderstand our greatest need and I know that because I hear this all the time and I know that you do too that many people continue to put hope in politics as if it is going to rescue us from what we desire the most and there's too much history that proves that is not the case and yet we continue to look at it and more Christians are being discipled by CNN and Fox News than the Bible more people are following the teaching of Anderson Cooper and Tucker Carlson than they are following the teaching of Jesus. And it's because we're misunderstanding our greatest need is not political freedom. Our greatest need is we are sinners and we need a Savior. And Christmas reminds us that He comes to save us of our greatest need. And I love this quote by D.A. Carson where he makes this point. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, He would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was an entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was a political stability, he would have sent us a politician. That's what Joseph was anticipating. If God had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involves our alienation or separation from him. And that we have a profound rebellion within us. This is our sin nature. That leads to our death. And so he sent us a Savior. He sent us a Savior to meet our greatest need. And the tragedy is when we think something else becomes our greatest need. We lose sight of the love of God. So Joseph... He hears this and he's thinking, I thought it was going to be the Roman Empire rescue, but God, you're up to something else. So how does Joseph respond? Well, Joseph is at least smart enough to know that when the angel of the Lord speaks, I have one singular job, listen, right? It's kind of a good practice, okay? And so he decides to listen, and as he listens, you know how he responds the next, next day? He simply obeys. God spoke, he obeyed. It's another good practice. When God speaks, we just obey, right? Even if we can't quite connect the dots yet, we step into faith. Now, let me just pause and make sure you caught the profound impact on your life and mine that the angel of the Lord just revealed to Joseph and ultimately to me and you. Here's what the angel of the Lord is revealing to me and you. That God sent his son Jesus to save you from your sins. Would you just read that out loud? Read this out loud with me. God sent his son Jesus 
to save you from your sins. Now, can I just push here a little bit and tell you, you know why you're not moved by that? You and I aren't moved by this because we mishear what this says. See, back in Matthew 121, that dream that we just read, what we see is that Jesus came because he will save his people, say these three words with me, from their sins. But here's how you and I hear this verse, and this is really critical. We instead hear this verse say, oh, Jesus was sent because he will save his people of their sins. In other words, we read this as forgiveness and forgiveness alone. In fact, what we do then, and many of us, me included, we're guilty of this. This is, I'm telling you, I'm trying to lean into this and learn this. But here's what we do. We reduce Christmas to forgiveness alone. Oh, he came to forgive me of my sin. And I'm grateful for God's forgiveness. And Scripture talks a lot about that being an important part of the story of salvation, forgiveness. But that isn't what the angel told That is not all that the angel told Joseph. He said that we will be forgiven from our sins, not just of our sins. In other words, if you reduce, and if I reduce Christmas just to forgiveness alone, it's sort of like getting a really nice sports car, which I don't have, and you had a really nice sports car, and you said, I've always wanted this sports car, and I'm going to take this sports car and do what you're supposed to do with a sports car. I'm going to store it in my garage. I'm going to take it and I'm going to protect it. I'm going to make sure it looks nice. I'm going to cover it. And every once in a while, I'll probably get it out a couple times a year on Easter and Christmas. And then I'm going to back it up in my driveway every once in a while. I'm going to take the cover off. I'm going to wash it. I'm going to wax it. I'll probably take a picture of it. I'll probably post it on social media. I'll for sure put it in my social media profile that I own this sports car. I'll talk about it a lot. I'll enjoy it in that way. And then I'll put it right back into that garage and do what you're supposed to do with a sports car that's this nice. It's supposed to just be a trophy that's stored in your garage. And you would go, that's ridiculous. That's not what a sports car is about. A sports car is about getting it out on the open road. It leads you to freedom. You get to go out and enjoy it. It creates memories. You go see interesting places. It brings you life. It brings you joy. It's intended to be enjoyed outside of just the garage. And you're right. It would be ridiculous to reduce a nice sports car to just something that was a trophy stored in your garage. But this is what we do to the Christmas story. We reduce Christmas to just forgiveness alone. It is part of the Christmas story. It's just not all of the Christmas story. Here it is. Here's the bottom line. Jesus didn't just come to offer forgiveness for our sins, but to offer freedom from our sins. And this is the rarely talked about part of the Christmas story that many Christians never experience. And if you're new here, and you aren't yet a follower of Jesus, and you go, you know what, I see a lot of Christians struggle with this, and you, are, you would be seeing rightly. We do struggle with this. We aren't going to have a sinless life. We are going to continue to have conflict with sin, but we are not going to have, be controlled by sin. This is what Jesus is teaching, that we are no longer under its control. We can have freedom from. Wow. Now, this is different. In fact, that's one of the reasons why if you look at our mission of LifePoint, it's simply in four words. We want to say we want to share Jesus and build believers. We want to have forgiveness for our sins. 
and we will spend the rest of our life learning how to have freedom from our sin. This is a one-time moment where we're going to share, where people are going to accept, and then we're going to build, and we're going to do that for the rest of our life. And this is the hard work. This is why we put our hat on every single week is we are going to groups, and we're opening the Bible together, and we are learning how to have freedom from our sins. We aren't just forgiven for. It's so much bigger than that. Jesus taught this regularly. And I don't know about you, but I missed it so many times. This is why Jesus is the one who uh, confronted the men who were about to stone the woman caught in adultery that I mentioned earlier. They, a bunch of these guys have, they have their rocks and they're about to publicly condemn and shame this woman and then they're going to essentially execute her. And Jesus is the one who comes to her defense and he says, okay guys, before you throw your rocks, before you do that, make sure it's only those who are without sin. And I picture because he's God and he knows everything, he starts going, okay, and Bob, here's your sin. Chuck, here's your sin. All of a sudden, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He knows a little too much, right? And they're dropping the rock and he kneels down beside this woman who's covered in shame and says, where are your accusers? And she looks up and they've all walked away. And he says, neither do I condemn you, forgiveness. And then he says, go and sin no more. Freedom from sin. You've got to think, why would Jesus say that? Is that even possible? Is that even a reality that we could actually experience that? And Jesus is saying he didn't just come to offer us forgiveness for our sin, but to give us freedom from our sin. He taught this over and over again. And otherwise, you will spend your life going, is there more? And Jesus taught in John 10.10, if you've been around here for more than a year, you'll remember we put this one to memory in last year's one of our series. John 10.10, Jesus is the one who said this. Again, teaching this over and over again. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. But, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, and, he said, have it to the, say it with me, full. In other words, when you have Jesus, you're no longer a captive to your sin, but you're now captivated by him. You are experiencing life to the full. Then when you are full of a relationship with him, you're no longer asking, is there more? Because he gives you life, but not just any life. He gives you life to the full. Christmas is bigger than forgiveness. It is freedom from our sin. Now, it wasn't just Jesus, but his most famous follower, the Apostle Paul in that first century, he began to teach us, and I mean, think about this. He's teaching it all the time. This is the one, Paul, who had done all these crazy things He's the one who's gone out and, and arrested and persecuted and executed Christians, and yet he is saying it's better than forgiveness. He appreciated forgiveness, but he's saying it's freedom from sin. That's why in Romans chapter 6 and on, he focuses on the fact there is freedom from sin. If you took the entire book of Galatians, which he also wrote, it would be focusing on freedom from our sin. But I want you to see what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 12, because here's where he's really turning the dial up a little bit more to really embrace this truth that many of us miss. Romans chapter 6 verse 12, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign. You will still have conflict with sin, but you don't have to have, be under sin's control. Don't let it reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. I love this verse. There's so much in this verse. Your mortal body, this is the part of us that eventually will die. It is decaying, 
and it is the most untrustworthy voice in your life. Like, you want to do stuff you know you shouldn't do, and you don't want to do stuff you know you should do. It feels like there are two of you at times, right? And this is what Paul's saying. Yeah, you have a mortal body, and your mortal body is giving you or prompting you toward evil desires, and he's saying, don't obey it. You don't have to obey it. Yes, it's there. It's why you want to watch that. It's why you want to say that. It's why you want to go there. It's why you want to hold back. It's why you want to resist. You want to resent. You want to be bitter. You don't want to forgive. It's because you have a mortal body that has evil desires, but what Paul is revealing is you don't have to be under its authority anymore. You have the ability. You have agency to be able to make decisions that go against what you actually have a desire to do. And then you're like, man, I don't know. This is like, whoo, I'm trying to figure all this out. I'm with you. I'm right there with you. But I know it's true because you see this all throughout the book of Romans, all throughout the book of Galatians. You see Jesus teach this over and over and over again. And we're so focused on enjoying the beauty and the gift and the mystery of forgiveness that we miss the freedom from sins which give full life that we have been designed to enjoy, that we don't have to be under sin's control. Now, here's what that means is you shouldn't have as a goal to be sinless. Not on this side of heaven. Because you still live in a mortal body that has evil desires that will constantly prompt you in the wrong direction. But what you can know is you no longer are bound by the desires that you have to follow them just because you have them. And we'll talk about how to do that in just a second because Paul wants to make that super clear. But here's what I'm fascinated with what Paul is saying. And think about Jesus as well. What Paul is revealing goes counter to our culture right now. Because Paul is saying, don't be a victim. Paul is making it real clear. Now think about Paul who's saying this. Paul is the one who has been uh, stoned, not like smoking stone, but like throwing rock stoned, okay? Paul is the one who was wrongly arrested Paul's the one who was beaten and left for dead. Jesus is the one who was also falsely accused and eventually crucified him. Both of them are saying, despite all of that, we aren't victims. We are not under the reign of sin. You see, in our culture, and, and, and I'm guilty, we're all guilty of this, or it's so tempting to blame somebody from my past or to blame somebody who's in my present or to blame the culture and the environment that I am in. We can learn from these things, and I think that's very healthy, but we aren't under their controls. I am responsible for my behavior. I am responsible for my decisions. And this is what Paul's pushing us to. You may be in a mortal body that has evil desires, but you do not have to let sin reign in you. You get to make the choice. You get to be in control. This is new freedom that Jesus offers, and this is a new thing that is on this side of the Christmas story. And so here's all I want to say to you is this means a lot when we think of our own mortal body and where the temptations come, where those desires are embedded within us. But I just want to point out about four different things, and, and you can take this as far as you want to take it, but let me just talk about your mind, about your ears, about your eyes, and about your mouth, or about your tongue, the things that we say. First of all, one of the things Paul wants us to know is our mind is like the steering wheel of our life. It leads everything. It gives direction to where you go, to where you look, to what you do, the things that you say. And Paul is the one that says to take your thoughts captive. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean you have to rehearse it, recycle it, and just host it, right? And so he is saying you are no longer obligated 
to think about things that are of jealousy or of lust or of arrogance. Instead, he says you have the opportunity, Philippians 4, 8, to focus and think about things that are true, that are noble, that are just, that are lovely, that are excellent, that are praiseworthy. He says you have the opportunity. You're no longer obligated. We get to be responsible for the things that we think about, the things that we put into our eyes that cause us to think about things. What about your eyes? He says we are no longer obligated to think about and to look at things that make us angry. We are no longer obligated to look at things that make us self-focused. We are no longer obligated to look at things that cause us to be greedy, but instead we have the opportunity to see other people who have need, to see other people who need a word of encouragement, to look at things that draw our heart to God or to look at the scriptures that bring truth into our life. We don't have to let sin reign over us. We now have an opportunity to instead rest, on, rest in a relationship with our king. Then what about the ears? We are no longer obligated to listen to slander, to listen to complaints, to listen to people gossip, to listen to people condemn others. We don't have to listen to that anymore. Instead, we now have an opportunity to be people who listen to hurting people, who listen to the whisper of God. When, when it comes to our tongue, think about we are no longer obligated to say things that cut other people down, that, that, that minimize others, that, that, uh, that slander others, that, that focus on complaint or condemnation. Instead, we have opportunity to be the kind of people who praise God and to bring encouragement to other people and to offer prayers on behalf of others. This is an opportunity where Paul is saying, you now have a choice. You are under sin's reign. You've been freed from. You say, but how? Because I still have those desires. I know me I know I'm still tempted how do I get to that place where I experience freedom from and this is what Paul wants to point out in two verses later in verse 14 Paul goes on to say yes you'll have evil desires but you can take charge and here's how for sin no longer will be your master because you are not under the law this is a big deal you are not under sin's reign but you are under say that last word with me grace you are under grace. Jesus came. He went to the cross. God demonstrated his love, and Christ died for you. You are under grace. In other words, this is so important. This is where some of us who maybe grew up thinking that we're earning something in our relationship with God, we are reminded that I'm not earning power. I'm not providing myself power. I'm tapping into power. So if I'm reading three chapters a day and you're only reading two, I don't necessarily have more power than you. If you're reading eight and I'm reading three, you don't necessarily have more power than me. If you're praying for an hour and a half and I'm not, you don't necessarily have more power than me. Our behavior is not producing power. But in our behavior, we are tapping into power. We are tapping into the grace. And so we are invited in. We don't read to try to prove anything. We read to tap into this wonderful God who loves us and who gives us the ability to be free from sin. Now, here's why this is such a big deal. You say, Mark, I don't know. Forgiveness is kind of good enough for me. <laughs> like, after all, if I do something wrong, I'm going to go to God and he's going to forgive me. It's kind of a sweet deal, right? And the reason this is such a big deal is we don't fully appreciate the destruction and the weight and how big a deal sin is. Because if you go later on in that same chapter, chapter 6, you look down at verse 23, Paul wants us to know this, and he knows this personally. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the truth. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to know that sin kills things. 
Sin has a way of destroying. It kills marriages. It kills your finances. It kills relationships. It kills your peace. It kills your joy. Wherever sin is present, things are dying. And this is what Paul and Jesus want us to know. That in order to have life to the full, we can't be going around killing things and then asking for forgiveness because forgiveness, though beautiful, does not remove the consequences of our actions. And we know that. We know that because we see prisons full of forgiven sinners, but they're still in prison. Because sin kills, but Jesus gives life. He's come to give me and you life. This is the unseen part of the Christmas story, that Jesus didn't just come to offer forgiveness for sin, but he came to offer freedom from sin. And if this is new to you, maybe some of you, you're so far down the road, you're enjoying this, and a smile comes on your face because you're like, yes, this is where full life comes. If you're newer to it, and you say, man, I don't even know how to take this, how to get very far down the road, I would just encourage you today, we're going to give it, make it real practical at the end, just take your first step toward enjoying the freedom from your sins. Why? Because the Christmas story both provides freedom and forgiveness. It offers both. This is the beauty of the Christmas story. We need the Christmas story because it gives us hope, it gives us life, and it answers this question that we started off at the beginning. Is there more? The question we all ask and we'll continue to ask and every time you can go to John 10, 10 and go, that's right, it's in Jesus that I find full life. It's in Matthew 121 that I'm reminded I am not only forgiven for, but I have freedom from sins. Oh yes, there is more, and I might be reducing salvation, and there's more. There is more. So Jesus offers more than forgiveness. He offers freedom. He not only offers forgiveness life, he offers full life. So with that said, I want to ask a couple of questions as we kind of begin to make this super practical, because wherever Jesus is, there is freedom. And he's here today. Many of you have already made him your Savior and your Lord, and you've basked in the glow of forgiveness, but you've never taken that step toward freedom from sin. So let me just ask you a real personal question. How about you? Are you experiencing both the forgiveness for sin and the freedom from sin? And if you haven't yet experienced the forgiveness for sin, can I just say, we would love to pray with you today. Right after the service, you can go behind this tech booth here. There's an area designated for you if you want to go there. We have folks who would love to support you in prayer after every service. Today, I, along with our team, will be out in the lobby. I would love to pray with you. If you just want somebody to pray with you after the service today, we'd be so honored to do that with you today. And for the rest of us, let's just be real practical today. Let's not make this some ethereal, like, theology class. Let's talk about where you and I live this week as we approach Christmas this year, 2022. How about this? What's an area of your life right now where sin has control? Where if others knew what you're struggling with, you would feel shame of. And you're like, you know what? i got to own that. I am responsible for letting sin reign in my mind for letting sin reign in what I'm listening or who I am listening to, for letting sin reign in what I'm looking at, or for letting sin reign in what I am saying to others or about others. What about you? I would encourage you. What we want to do, in fact, just to kind of wrap up today, I think it would be better instead of me praying and we sing and leave, I would love to create some space right now for you to hear from your Creator 
to turn this last question, just, let's just turn it into a prayer. Where you pray that prayer and you just say, God, I want to be like Joseph and I just want to listen. Where am I letting sin reign in my life right now? Where is the struggle for me right now? Is it in my mind? Is it what I'm listening to, what I'm looking at, what I'm saying? And here's what I'll promise you. God always answers this question when we ask it honestly. And he wants to answer it for you today. And then I would encourage you to do like Joseph and just respond and surrender. And when God speaks, just obey. And take a step toward not just forgiveness for sin, but freedom from sin. What a gift Jesus came to save us from our sins. So now, this week, right now, today, in this moment, as we just kind of create a space for quiet, for you just right now to bow your head and just pray and turn this question into a prayer. And you have a conversation with your Creator. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.